Welcome to the History AI Podcast, where the past comes alive with facts, anecdotes, and a dash of humor. Here are your hosts, Chuck and Marco. Welcome to the History AI Podcast. I'm Chuck. And I'm Marco. Today, we're delving into a gripping chapter of World War II, the Battle of Wake Island. Before we dive in, remember to rate, follow, and share our podcast. Let's make history together. Let's set the stage. It's 1941, a world shadowed by conflict. Europe is already in the throes of World War II. Hitler's forces are rampaging across the continent, and Britain stands alone against the Axis powers. Meanwhile, in Asia, the Japanese Empire is on the move. They've been expanding their territory since the 1930s, invading parts of China and clashing with Soviet forces in border conflicts. The world's a chessboard of power struggles, Chuck. The US, though officially neutral, is watching with growing concern. They've been supporting the Allies through programs like Lend-Lease, but they're trying to avoid direct involvement in the war. That's right, Marco. But Japan views the US as a potential threat to their expansionist goals, especially in the Pacific. They're eyeing the Philippines, Guam, and other islands, but they know the US Pacific fleet in Hawaii is a formidable obstacle. So, the Japanese devise a bold and risky strategy. They plan simultaneous surprise attacks, the most infamous being Pearl Harbor. But there's another target, often overlooked in the history books, Wake Island. A tiny atoll, about halfway between Hawaii and Guam, Wake Island is strategically significant. It's a potential airfield and naval base that could disrupt Japanese supply lines and threaten their operations in the South Pacific. The U.S. had started fortifying Wake Island in 1941, understanding its strategic importance. But it's isolated Chuck, making it vulnerable and difficult to reinforce. As December approaches, the world remains unaware of the impending storm about to break in the Pacific. The stage is set for a confrontation that would not only change the course of the war but also mark the beginning of a new era in global conflict. And that's the world stage, as it was, just before the fateful events at Wake Island and Pearl Harbor. Diving into Japan's strategy, it's vital to understand their broader objectives in the Pacific. They aim to establish a defensive perimeter stretching from the Aleutians in the north to the Solomon Islands in the south. And Wake Island Marco was a key piece in this puzzle. Situated about 2,000 miles west of Hawaii, it offered a strategic outpost for controlling the Central Pacific. Exactly, Chuck. The Japanese High Command, led by Admiral Yamamoto, understood that controlling Wake Island would not only provide them with a forward base, but also hinder American ability to project power westwards from Hawaii. Their plan was meticulous, involving several components. First, neutralize the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Simultaneously, seize other key locations like the Philippines, Guam, and, of course, Wake Island. The operation against Wake was designated as part of the broader Hawaii operation. The Japanese assigned Vice Admiral Sadamichi Kajioka to lead the assault. The initial force included several warships, including the light cruiser Yubari, destroyers, and two old patrol boats converted into troop transports. They also planned air support, didn't they Marco? The Japanese deployed aircraft from their carriers and bases in the Marshall Islands to provide reconnaissance and bombing support. Spot on Chuck. The Japanese also understood the challenges. Wake's small garrison, mainly U.S. Marines under Major James Devereux, had been bolstering their defenses. They had fortified positions, despite limited resources and manpower, 
the Japanese expected light resistance. They thought the surprise attack and overwhelming force would swiftly secure Wake Island. But as we'll see, things didn't go as smoothly as the Japanese had anticipated. The defenders of Wake Island were about to put up a fight far beyond what anyone expected. That sets the stage for the confrontation at Wake Island, a clash between a seemingly unstoppable force and an immovable object. Let's focus on the defenders of Wake Island. The U.S. garrison was composed primarily of Marine Corps personnel, but they weren't alone. They were a diverse group, including civilian contractors who had been working on the island's construction projects. That's right, Marco. The Marines were from the 1st Defense Battalion, led by Major James Devereux. They were seasoned, well-trained, and ready for combat, even though they were only about 450 strong. They were complemented by about 68 U.S. Navy personnel, and over 1,200 civilian contractors mostly employed by the Morrison-Nudson Company. These civilians played a crucial role, often volunteering to take up arms alongside the Marines. The equipment at their disposal was modest. They had a few coastal artillery pieces, including 5-inch guns, and some 50 caliber M2 Browning machine guns. There were also 12 F4F Wildcat fighters, which played a critical role in the island's defense. Now, let's talk about the Japanese forces. Vice Admiral Sadamichi Kajioka commanded a surface task force that included the light cruiser Yubari, two old destroyers converted into troop transports, and six other destroyers. Air support was crucial for the Japanese. They launched attacks from bases in the Marshall Islands, using bombers and fighter planes to soften the island's defenses before the ground assault. The Japanese expected minimal resistance, envisioning a swift and decisive victory. However, the resolve of the U.S. forces on Wake Island was grossly underestimated. The initial Japanese air raids began just hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. These raids aimed to destroy the island's air capability and infrastructure, specifically targeting the Wildcats and the Pan American Airways facilities. Despite these challenges, the defenders of Wake Island maintained a strong resistance. The Marines and civilian workers collaborated, setting up defensive positions, repairing damaged equipment, and preparing for the ground assault they knew was coming. This mix of professional military personnel and civilians, under the direst of circumstances, transformed Wake Island into a formidable stronghold, one that would deeply challenge the Japanese invasion force. The Battle of Wake Island unfolded dramatically over two weeks in December 1941. The Japanese commenced their assault with air raids, aiming to neutralize Wake's defenses, particularly the airfield and the Wildcat fighters. On the first day, the Japanese destroyed eight of the twelve Wildcats. But the remaining pilots, including Captain Henry T. Elrod, heroically took to the skies, valiantly defending against further air assaults. Elrod, particularly, became a legend. He not only shot down several Japanese aircraft, but also sank the enemy destroyer Kisaragi by bombing its depth charges, an unprecedented feat for a fighter pilot. On the ground, the Marines and civilian volunteers, under Major Devereux's command, showed incredible resilience. Despite the bombardment, they kept their anti-aircraft guns firing and repaired damaged equipment between attacks. The first Japanese landing attempt on December 11th was a surprise night attack. The U.S. forces, outnumbered, fought fiercely. Using their limited artillery and machine guns, they inflicted heavy casualties on the Japanese, forcing them to retreat. This unexpected repulse shocked the Japanese. The Wake Island garrison, vastly outnumbered and outgunned, 
had thwarted a well-planned amphibious assault. Following this, for the next several days, the island endured continuous bombardment from air and sea. Despite this, the defenders repaired their guns, built improvised fortifications, and kept morale high. Meanwhile, Elrod and other pilots kept engaging the enemy in the air. Despite dwindling numbers, they managed to inflict significant damage on the Japanese planes. On the ground, stories of individual heroism abound. Men like Sergeant Major James P. S. Devereux and Lieutenant John A. McAllister coordinated the defense, often moving under heavy fire to rally their troops and maintain defensive positions. As the battle progressed, the situation for the defenders became increasingly dire. Supplies were running low, and with the Japanese blockade, no reinforcements could reach the island. The final assault came on December 23rd. Japanese forces, reinforced and determined, launched a massive bombardment followed by another amphibious landing. This time, despite fierce resistance, the defenders were overwhelmed. Now, here's where it gets controversial Chuck. Commander Winfield Scott Cunningham, in charge of the island's overall defense, faced a dire situation. The defenders had fought bravely and inflicted heavy casualties on the Japanese. However, they were running out of supplies, and no U.S. reinforcements were forthcoming due to the wider strategic situation in the Pacific. That's right Marco Cunningham, understanding the hopeless situation and wishing to spare further loss of life, decided to surrender the island to the Japanese. This decision, while pragmatic, was heartbreaking for the Marines, who had demonstrated exceptional courage and tenacity. The aftermath was tragic. The U.S. casualties included 49 killed and a few dozen wounded. The surviving defenders, including both military personnel and civilians, became prisoners of war under harsh conditions. For the Japanese, the victory came at a high price. Their losses were substantial, far higher than anticipated, impacting their subsequent operations in the Pacific. The fall of Wake Island, although a tactical defeat for the U.S., became a symbol of heroic resistance. The bravery of its defenders would long be remembered and honored in American military history. The bravery and resilience of its defenders became a symbol of American grit and determination, inspiring the nation at a time when morale was critically low. The Battle of Wake Island showcased a variety of military tactics used by both the U.S. defenders and the Japanese attackers, each adapting to the unique challenges of the situation. The U.S. Marines, under Major Devereux's leadership, utilized their limited resources with exceptional ingenuity. Their primary strategy was to establish a flexible defense, capable of responding rapidly to attacks from any direction. They had strategically positioned their coastal artillery and machine guns to cover the island's beaches, anticipating the likelihood of an amphibious assault. These artillery pieces, including 5-inch guns, were not only used against naval targets but also effectively repurposed to fire on land targets during Japanese landings. The Marines also employed guerrilla tactics. Small units moved stealthily around the island, setting up surprise attacks against the Japanese forces, exploiting their intimate knowledge of the terrain. The Wildcat fighters, despite being heavily outnumbered, used hit-and-run tactics in the air. Pilots like Captain Elrod would wait for opportune moments to strike against the Japanese bombers and fighters, inflicting significant damage. On the Japanese side, their initial tactic was overwhelming force, both in their air raids and naval bombardment, aimed at softening the island's defenses before the ground assault. The Japanese also attempted deception and surprise in their assault. 
Their first significant landing attempt on December 11 was a nighttime operation, expecting to catch the defenders off guard. However, after their initial landing attempt was repulsed, the Japanese adapted their tactics. They increased their bombardment intensity and brought in additional troops and equipment for a more concerted second assault. They also employed psychological tactics, attempting to demoralize the U.S. defenders through continuous bombardment and the threat of overwhelming numbers. In the final assault, the Japanese combined heavy pre-landing bombardment with a coordinated ground assault from multiple directions, aiming to overwhelm the U.S. defenses through sheer force and numbers. Throughout the battle, both sides demonstrated tactical flexibility, adjusting their strategies in response to the evolving situation. The defenders, with their resourcefulness and tenacity, and the attackers, with their overwhelming force and adaptability, showcased different aspects of military strategy and tactics in a confined and intense battlefield. The Battle of Wake Island, while a relatively small engagement in the vast scope of World War II, held significant strategic and symbolic importance that resonated far beyond its shores. Absolutely Marco strategically, Wake Island was a key point in the Pacific. Its location made it a valuable staging ground for air and naval operations. Although the Japanese eventually captured it, the fierce resistance there disrupted their initial momentum and altered their Pacific campaign timetable. The battle demonstrated the vulnerabilities in Japanese planning. They had underestimated the resolve and capability of U.S. forces, leading to unexpectedly high casualties and delays. This miscalculation forced Japan to reassess its approach in future operations. From the American perspective, the defense of Wake Island was a much-needed morale booster. Following the shock of Pearl Harbor, the news of the gallant stand at Wake provided a rallying point for the American public and military. It also had a significant impact on U.S. military strategy. The resistance at Wake, along with the attack on Pearl Harbor, catalyzed a shift in American military policy, leading to an increased focus on the Pacific theater. In a broader sense, the Battle of Wake Island symbolized the resilience and fighting spirit of American forces. It became a part of war propaganda, reinforcing the narrative of American determination against adversity. He battle also influenced the Allied perception of Japanese capabilities. The initial underestimation of Japanese forces was corrected, leading to a more cautious and strategic approach in subsequent Pacific engagements. On the Japanese side, while Wake Island was a tactical victory, it became clear that capturing territory was one thing, but holding it amidst growing U.S. opposition would be another challenge altogether. The battle's outcome also had implications for the treatment of prisoners of war. The capture of American servicemen and civilians on Wake Island by the Japanese brought attention to the harsh conditions and treatment of POWs, influencing international opinion. In the grand scheme of World War II, the Battle of Wake Island was a small but pivotal moment. It showcased the global nature of the conflict, the shifting strategies of both the Axis and Allied powers, and set the stage for the grueling and protracted war in the Pacific. Indeed Chuck. The legacy of Wake Island is a testament to bravery under dire circumstances, and a reminder of the complexities and human costs of war. As we remember Wake Island, we honor those who fought and sacrificed there. Join us next time as we explore more fascinating historical events. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share the History AI podcast. And we're always eager to hear from you. Suggest topics on our social media channels. A special thank you to our listeners. Your support keeps history alive. Until next time, keep exploring the past and its lasting impacts.
From the mind behind the History AI podcast comes an electrifying journey into the past. A ripple through time, Franklin's folly. Dive into a tale where Benjamin Franklin, America's beloved inventor, takes an unexpected journey through time. But with his leap, he unleashes a powerful ripple. Now, with dark forces lurking in the shadows, harnessing this energy to shatter and enslave the world, it's a race against time. Will Franklin fix the future? Or will history rewrite itself? Uncover the secrets. A ripple through time, Franklin's folly. Time has never been more fragile. On Amazon now.